0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free.
1: As noted earlier, The liberal arts, on a parallel track, were also split away from their dialogue with theology. The liberal arts used to be, that was what it was about. And when they had the quadrivium, there were four, they introduced arithmetic, geometry, and two other things that enabled philosophy and theology still to really be in service to each other. So what happened then, when uh, when they were split away from this dialogue with theology, they suffered, the liberal arts suffered a similar loss in significance. Science moved into this vacuum and took up total domination. That's where we are today. Meanwhile, faith reduced to feeling and personal experience, lost all claim to universal interest and validity. Worse still, it was left with no reasonable grounds on which to verify its vital contribution to humanity as essential and essential component of culture. All of this adds up to what we find so hard to accept, that we do indeed live in a postmodern, post-Christian world. The collapse of rationalist optimism, which is collapsed, that had viewed history as the triumphant march of reason on its way to building a world of happiness and freedom, leaves humanity bereft of both faith and reason. Faith reduced to irrelevance and reason discredited as completely unreliable in and for the conduct of human affairs. So to summarize, we come to a knowledge of the supernatural by analogy, which requires the use of reason. Moreover, grace builds on nature, so we must avail ourselves of all God's natural gifts in order to realize our true destiny. And finally, the definition of the human person is in turn definitive of culture. We, as Catholics, define a human person as having intellect and will, called to a relentless pursuit of truth and obliged to embrace the good, endowed with freedom, and therefore possessed of a dignity rightly due to moral agents capable of free choice. The modern view, by comparison, sees the individual as fully autonomous, accountable to no one, author of his or her own morality, needing to prove nothing, and therefore having no grounds in which to base any dignity at all. We see the individual... As neither beneath nor above any other individual or of society as a whole, but living in a social context with accountability and responsibility in the use of free will, lest an irresponsible use of freedom lead to nothingness apart from needs and addictions, which is where people are. I have these needs. I have these needs. I gotta go meet my needs. At this point, we are called by the church and by dire circumstance into dialogue with the world, which in many ways, is in the grip of a culture of death. So, how do we answer this question? I know this time just ran by. I have several pages left here. I can't, (laughs) maybe we'll spend a little time and get to it, some of them. But, how do we answer this question? Was Vatican II liberal or conservative? The answer is, Vatican II went right back to what the history of the church has always been, concerned with the human person now you can call this and the, the word sounds you know it gives you a hard time people kind of uh they flinch when you hear this word but it's christian humanism it's not liberal or conservative it's christian humanism and when you look back in the history of the church you see saint john damascene he was a christian humanist He didn't see humanity or the human being as as something bad, but as the wonder of creation with the potential and capacity to be like God. John Damascene and Isidore of of Seville, they were were really instrumental in developing a certain Christian humanism way back in the 7th and 8th centuries. And when you go through, you see St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a Christian humanist. When you see people like Thomas Moore, well, Erasmus, Erasmus was a Christian humanist, and he remained a Catholic and through all the Reformation times. And uh, coming more to the, to the modern times, G.K. Chesterton, The Everlasting Man. If you want to read a book, it's worth reading. And that this is what this is. He was Chesterton a liberal or conservative? No. He was a Christian humanist. The Everlasting Man, and the Everlasting Man, incidentally, was greatly instrumental in the conversion of C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. And, you know, guess what C.S. Lewis is? He's a Christian humanist. <laughs> How about Jacques Maritain? Same thing. Hilaire Belloc, Gabriel Marcel, Christopher Dawson, John Paul II. They're not liberals, they're not conservatives. There are people who go to the heart of the matter that being human is the greatest revelation that God made. You know, people, it's amazing. You know, when, when Vatican II came out and said this, uh, I remember I was talking to people uh, when they said, we have to start with a study of man. Everybody said, no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. God's more important than man. I mean, how can you start with man? Well, you, like Tom Rahner said, we cannot, go, we cannot know God except insofar as he pertains to us. Any knowledge of God, he said it in a more difficult way. He said, he said, the God is an attainable subject of our understanding only insofar as God pertains to us. In other words, if you study some abstract God, you're not studying God, you're studying some abstract notion. In order to know God, you have to know God like you know a person. You enter into a relationship, a salvific relationship with God as a human being. And when we do that, we come to what really is all this is all about. is to come back to a Christ-centered faith. Jesus as an incarnate love, as the sacred heart, as a human person. And what happened, you know, when, when we wanted to say just quickly to summarize, why did the church need change? Well, if you think about it, the church put more emphasis on morality than spirituality. It's a fact. When I was growing up as a kid, I didn't know about spirituality. I knew about morality. They put more emphasis on doctrinal purity, on orthodoxy, than on charity. That quote by uh, uh, Alfred, uh, Father Delp. In fact, he was just written up in the American Magazine some few weeks ago, where he said, in spite of all right reason and orthodox belief, the churches are coming to a dead end. What does that mean? You don't save the world by right reason, orthodox belief. You save the world by love, by sacrifice. And what Jesus said, he, didn't, he said, you know, this is not how you're going to know people because you've got a brain or you have these. He said, by this, shall all people know you are my disciples by your love one for another. Whoa. Now, what we did too before, we had more stress on the individual than the communal. But you know, and especially here in America, you know, individualism is pretty rampant. Even our public worship took on the form of private prayer. When people went to church and celebrate mass, it wasn't a celebration of a community as much as it was everybody going in there and celebrating their own mass, like it was a private act of devotion. And the church, because of, you know, if you heard with the first talk I talked about how the church was really the target of all sorts of attack uh, during, down you know, from Pius IX right on down. But what what happened was that the church paid more attention to its internal needs than to mission. So that there was like, you know, the Peter church, the institutional church, and the missionary church. I always belonged to the missionary church, and I I knew there was a big difference. <laughs> and uh, But that's what happened, you know. This is, the maintenance ministry was the chief concern. And it tilted sharply towards what they call a therapeutic model. You know, maintenance ministry, you know, it's instead of really What happened then, the church as an institution seemed to become an end in itself rather than a means to an end. And finally, there was minimal involvement of the laity in building up the kingdom. So, in addition to the codependent relationship with Reformation churches for over 450 years, which in large measure explains why much of that culture that we were in formed in the church, happens that apologetics displaced evangelization. We had a lot of apologetics, very little evangelization. So what's happening now is that the church, instead of being institutional, seats it sees itself in a new way. The people of God with a mission. Instead of edicts, there's dialogue. There's still a magisterium. It's not a question of whether there is or not, but how. How the magisterium brings in the vox fidelium, the vox, the census fidelium, the voice of the people, the sense of the faithful, and pretty much an end to this either-or thinking, liberal or conservative. Forget it. That doesn't doesn't help anybody. And finally, the the, uh, the concepts of collegiality and apostolicity, that we are sent as the Father sent me, so I send you. I'm over time, so. With that, I will say the answer to this question is it's neither liberal nor conservative. It has elements of both, but it is essentially concerned with re- going back to the church of the initial church, Christocentric, you know, Christ-centered, and it's Christian humanism. The Humanist Manifesto. If you read that thing, you'll find that this is the real problem: human manifesto, human secular humanism. And what is the answer to secular humanism? Christian humanism that's the only answer not liberal liberalism or conservatism or remaking your church somehow to make it more palatable to modern man but going back to that core belief that jesus became human incarnate love to show us a model of what it means to be human and to live that as christians and then i'm sure that the holy spirit will prosper the work of our hands
0: We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. The encounter would end in tragedy. Local gang members confront a parish priest in his rectory room in eastern Nepal, demanding money. When their demands are denied, they shoot the priest. Learning what had happened, the villagers, mostly all Buddhists, come to the parish, some walking four or five days. Since then, they stand watch, guarding the parish and the priest who remains, determined to keep a presence of light, Christ's light, in the darkness of their world. May our presence for others always reflect a Christ-like strength and a passion for all that affirms life. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at OneFamilyInMission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this One Family in Mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents.
1: This uh, topic I'm going to talk, to talk about tonight is really, in a sense, the heart of the matter. And uh, I want to start out with uh, reference to The Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's film. How many of you have seen that? Okay. Now, the people who saw it, found it to be what we would call a soul-searing experience. When I saw it, I've seen it twice, but in each case, when people left the theater, they had all kinds of questions and wonderment about humanity, inhumanity, about evil, about religion, about their own lives, and above all, about the Christ. Why did he suffer so much? And what are we to do in the face of such utter inhumanity and such incomprehensible love? The numbers of people, uh, I mean, all kinds of people saw that film, and the degree to which they were deeply moved reflects a need of our time, which is um, a pervasive hunger for a deeper meaning in life. These two realities, the needs of the time and this this hunger, constitute what the Second Vatican Council described as the signs of the times. That is, clear evidence of an urgent need which calls for a direct and sustained response. An appropriate response would highlight the problem and offer a means through which it can be resolved. In short, that is a spirituality. The response would take the form of a contemporary spirituality that addresses the need and offers a cure. The brutality portrayed in The Passion of Christ was not an uncommon reality in the world of that time, the time when the Christian faith came into being. The world as it is, or as it was and continues to be at the time of the Second Vatican Council, Revealed many of the same features. Violence, oppression, injustice, political expediency, prejudice, ignorance, avarice, poverty, famine, and disease. It was common in the ancient world. It's common today. There are a billion people who live under uh, subhuman conditions. Now, with all our phenomenal sci- scientific and technological achievements our world today still wallows in a sea of affliction, indifference, terrorism, genocide, homelessness, illiteracy, hunger, and a widening threat from epidemic disease. There is one major difference between the time before Christ and the post-Christian world of today. People who understand and accept the radical gospel message of forgiveness and concern have reason to hope. The opening message to humanity spoken by the Second Vatican Council lays bare its purpose and its spirit of hope. I quote, Coming together in unity from every nation under the sun, we carry in our hearts the hardships, the bodily and mental distress, the sorrows, longings, and hopes of all peoples entrusted to us. We urgently turn our thoughts to all the anxieties by which modern man is afflicted. We want to fix a steady gaze on those who still lack the opportune help to achieve a way of life worthy of human beings. If this were not sufficient grounds for discerning the purpose of Vatican II, we have the words of Paul VI in his closing speech on December seventh, 1965. Quote, Another point we must stress is this. All this rich teaching is channeled in one direction, the service of mankind, of every condition, in every weakness and need. The Church has, so to say, declared herself the servant of humanity. That final sentence may strange, sound strangely out of tune with what you've all heard about the Second Vatican Council. Wasn't it called to update the church? Wasn't it all about aggiornamento, making the church contemporary, or if, if you will, modern and progressive? Well, it was. Because the church was not up to meeting the urgent and critical needs of the times. However the popes were not calling for some kind of cosmetic repair. They were looking for a deep interior conversion that would lift Christians out of their spiritual complacency and free them from their cultural complicity with the spirit of the age. This could not be accomplished short of a spiritual transformation within the church itself aimed at exposing and dealing with the root causes of the calamitous conditions besetting humanity around the globe. If we take a, a look at some of the characteristics prior to, of the church prior to Vatican II, we may begin to understand why a new spirituality was needed. Briefly before the council, we placed more emphasis on morality than on spirituality. We're more concerned about doctrinal purity, about orthodoxy, than about charity and the Lord's command By this shall all people know you are my disciples, by your love, one for another. We put more stress on the individual dimensions than on the communal aspects of our faith. In many ways, even our public worship was like private prayer, more than a sharing in a common celebration. We tended to see the church as an end in itself, with more attention to internal needs than to the mission of the church to its radical reason for being. Maintenance ministry was, our, was taken as our chief concern. We also settled for minimal involvement of the laity in building up the kingdom. And finally, we carried on a codependent relationship with the Reformation churches for some 450 years. As a consequence, apologetics, not evangelization, was the order of the day. So let's say, let's say we can take for granted that the Vatican, II, the Vatican II recognized the need for change, but it was not just an external change it was interior transformation and that requires spirituality. This word spirituality didn't come into common usage until around 1960. It came along for a number of reasons partly because people wanted to make distinctions between organized religions, devotional practices, the interior life, and the personal set of values, truths, and beliefs beliefs that give purpose and meaning to one's way of life. In short, a spirituality is the why behind a person's identity and a person's everyday pursuit of fulfillment. This search for distinctions was based in part on empirical evidence. Organized religion was proving to be irrelevant. Devotions were often a private affair with no public consequence. At the same time, however, tremendous strides had been made in the study of theology, particularly in regard to the Bible, liturgy, and social justice a revival reflected in the writings of popes ever since Leo XIII in 1890. As time went on, authors felt the need for a better way to apply these fresh theological insights to daily life. There were up-to-date books on asceticism, mysticism, scripture, liturgy, dogma, and moral theology, but there were no modern books on the theology of the spiritual life. The last such book, Introduction to the Devout Life, was written by St. Francis de Sales at the beginning of the 17th century, 1607. More recently, we we did have the autobiography of St. Therese of Lisieux, a Carmelite nun. It is very rich in spiritual insights and sets forth a rationale that is equivalent to a school of spirituality, the way that they, they called the way of childhood. However, this journal of a soul appeared only at the beginning of the 20th century and for the most part, it predates the findings of modern biblical scholarship. The first book of note on the theology of the spiritual life was written by a French redemptorist, F. X. Durwell. It was published in 1960, was translated by Rosemary Sheed, and appeared in the United States in 1963. It was appropriately titled, In the Redeeming Christ. By 1969, in writing a small treatise on how humanity substitutes a range of human values, many posing as virtues for true religion, William Stringfellow intentionally avoided the word spirituality because it had suffered so much abuse in such in just a few short years as to be rendered nearly meaningless. William Stringfellow, incidentally, was, a, he was an Episcopalian, but he writes brilliantly about faith. And he had a very uh, kind of a disease where he was in constant pain. Anyhow, for all of that, Stringfellow gives us a fairly good idea of what spirituality should mean. I quote, Nothing seems more bewildering to a person outside the church about those inside the church than the contrast between how Christians behave in society and what Christians do in church. This contrast is not, I suspect, just taken for granted by outsiders as evidence of the hypocrisy of professed Christians. It is not simply that Christians do not practice what is preached and neglect to authenticate worship by witness. The non-church man is, I suggest, much more bewildered by the difficulty of discerning either connection or consistency between social action and the liturgical event. In short, this quotation is uh, as though in proof of his view that the term uh, spirituality is ambivalent. We find that Stringfellow is actually talking about the consistency one might expect between behavior and belief, between the notion of witness, the significance of liturgy, or the lack thereof, and the basis for what might be regarded as public morality or civic responsibility. Through all of this, The main point is the disconnect between what Christians do in society and in the sanctuary. But Stringfellow, without using the term, is talking about spirituality. Now, Pope Paul VI, in his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world, had already noted this same social phenomenon. He writes, I think it's in paragraph 19, the split between the gospel and culture is without a doubt the drama of our time, just as it was of other times. He's talking about the split between the gospel and our culture, our daily lives, the culture we live by. Here we see again what the word means. A spirituality is what establishes consistency between identity and purpose. It bridges the gap between doctrine and life. It incorporates faith into culture, which in turn authorizes personal and social behavior. The why, or the concept of purpose, is critical. It defines spirituality. Time and time again, Jesus said as much, and these were equivalent words. I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. Indeed, everything that Jesus did, even before he had come of age, was to fulfill the will of the Father. When discovered in the temple by his parents, after they had been anxiously searching for him for three days, Jesus asked with some consternation, Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? That was his purpose, the source of his energy and his only goal, to incarnate, to actualize, and to manifest the eternal love of the Father for all of God's children. Jesus became love incarnate. Now, he didn't take this as an objective or a personal attainment, like being the best teacher or the greatest miracle worker, or the most gracious of all people in history. Nor was his mission a function that he was to perform. It was a representation of divine eternal truth, a revelation of the unconditional and everlasting love of God manifested in himself and in his unique relationship to God and to humanity. His mission was first of all a way of being, a way of being later symbolized by his most sacred heart, the essence of his identity and purpose, what we might call his spirituality.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time
1: for more Living Bread Radio Presents.